Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, kids, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Pallette, and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. You know, I was just thinking about that, that introduction. I've, I've been saying that almost 400 times. 400 times. Actually, technically, you've said it more than 400 times. Well, that's true. Because uh, this is our 400th episode, guys. Woohoo! But, uh, but that explains the streamers and the balloons. Yeah, yeah. Also, uh. Why do all the balloons have Josh's face on them? Well, it was cheaper that way. Oh. We, we ordered way too many for South by Southwest, so I just grabbed a whole bunch of them. Okay. They're mylar. They'll be up for hours. Anyway, so you guys, uh, who have been with us from the very beginning might be thinking, wow, 400 episodes. I can't believe it, and neither can we. But, Technically, we've actually recorded more than 400 episodes because uh, back, back, back in the very earliest days of this podcast, we recorded several test episodes that never published. Yes, they're buried out back somewhere. Yeah, in, they. In so, a I, box. and I know what you're all thinking. You're thinking, Jonathan and Chris, are you telling me that there were some episodes from early, early on that were even less polished than the ones that you actually published? And the answer to that is, words can hurt. <laughs> but um, yeah, those those episodes just really didn't work. And so, for our 400th episode, we're going to talk about stuff that doesn't work. Like, never mind. Um, so, <laughs> hey, I, I worked hard this week. Don't look at me. All right, so let's... Uh, no, so I was going to make a, a familial joke, and since I don't actually have gotcha. the relative who doesn't work, I won't, I'll skip it. All right, so we're going to talk about uh, a whole bunch of different things. Some of these are going to be hoaxes, so they were never meant to work. They were just meant to either fool people for funsies or for financial gain or some other reason. Some of them aren't necessarily hoaxes. They were things that people have pursued, but it just hasn't panned out. Uh, some of them are things that might have technically worked, but didn't actually work in the real world. Mm-hmm. Like you could make it work, but no one wanted it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but we're going to start with one of the most famous things that just has never worked, which is uh, perpetual motion devices. Yeah, this is one of those that's easier to sell because people want a machine that can do what a perpetual motion machine would do if it actually could. Do yeah. It. So let's talk about what perpetual machines. There, and actually, there's there's another device, uh, type of device called an over unity performance device, which is related to perpetual motion. Uh-huh. Uh, the there is a difference, however. So perpetual motion is some sort of device that once set into motion will continue perpetually without the need for external uh, uh, force to come into the system to keep it going. Right. So, like, think of a wheel, and once the wheel starts spinning, it never, ever stops. You never have to reach in and give it another push. It'll just keep going forever. Now, in that case, you're talking about a uh, a, a system that is generating just enough energy to keep going. Mm-hmm. So, so you're not you're not getting excess energy out of that. Right. So, perpetual motion machine, if you were to be able to make one, would be mostly a curiosity. It would be interesting to look at, but it wouldn't be useful necessarily. Uh, the over-unity performance type of device, that's different. That's talking about some sort of device that actually generates more energy than is required to put into it. So it's got an efficiency that's greater than 100%. 
Because at 100 percent efficiency, it would just keep running, right? Right. But if it had 130 percent, then you would be generating 30 percent more energy than you were required to to start that device. This is this is the goal of lots of different people out there. Some of whom are are pursuing it. Uh, uh, sincerely, mm-hmm. and others who are trying to pull the wool over people's eyes by saying they've got this essentially a free energy machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and you should always be, there are a lot of different red flags to look out for, but free energy is definitely a big one because as far as we can tell, it's not really possible. It's, it, that's not to say that it is, it is impossible due to the laws of physics. It's just that by the by our knowledge, by our understanding of how the universe works and based upon everything that we know about the way things behave within our universe, it does not appear to be possible. That doesn't mean that one day we don't figure it out. It just means that based upon everything we know so far, it's a good bet to say not possible. Um, well, you have to uh, follow the laws of physics, yeah. know, even when you never studied law. Right. Yes. Um, so, so the, you know, <laughs> you, you put your wheel into motion and you have to deal with, uh, you know, trifling little things like friction. Yeah, friction and viscosity and things like that. Yeah, dissipative forces is what that's called. Mm-hmm. These are forces that uh, that end up taking some of that energy that goes into a system and converting it into other forms, which means you have a loss of energy. Now, friction, for example, it will convert things into heat, mm-hmm. it'll, energy into heat. So you lose uh, energy through heat, through a system. Well, unless it's generating that same amount of energy somehow through its operation, that means you have a net loss of energy. And eventually, that device is going to slow down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and dissipative forces are include more than just friction and viscosity, but those are two that are very easily uh, explained. So right. that tends to be the two that most people focus on, but there's more than just that. Uh, but there have been people throughout history who have been trying to tackle this, and even from just the perpetual motion machine side. Uh, the very first documented perpetual motion machine that I could find came from an uh, an Indian author, uh, East India, not Native American, uh, named Bhaskara Mm -hmm. in 1159. And his proposed device was a wheel. Many perpetual motion devices come in the form of a wheel. It's a wheel that was uh, vertically aligned. So think of it like, you know, a water wheel. Yeah. You know, and it had uh, little containers at the end of the uh, around the the perimeter of the wheel. Mm -hmm. And these containers were going to contain uh, mercury. So Ah. liquid mercury. And the idea was that. You would turn the wheel and the liquid mercury, as it would reach a certain point uh, on the trip around the, the wheel, would slide down to the end of its container. Mm. And that that slide would cause uh, a weight imbalance upon one side of the axle of this wheel. And that would continue to give it the force needed to turn. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that once it was started in motion, it should perpetually turn. Turns out. Not so much. Uh, and there have been a lot of people who have tested this with many different variations on this weighted wheel concept, including Leonardo da Vinci. Yep. And he, he had a great quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, Oh, ye seekers after perpetual motion, how many vain chimeras have you pursued? Go and take your place with the alchemists. That's, not a, that's not a, not a high opinion. No, no, and it's funny that uh, that he made that comparison because as we've been talking, I've been thinking about that very same thing. And of course, uh, uh, the 
most famous prize of alchemy would be the ability to transmute lead into gold. Yes. Um, and there were very many uh, scientists who got their start in science trying to solve that problem because yeah. they realized as they did more experimentation that, well, you know, it wasn't simply going to work. Yeah, you can you can think of alchemy as sort of a proto science in that yeah. in that it really didn't follow the strict rules of science, but it was something that kind of gradually gave way to fields like chemistry mm-hmm. and and physics. Well, but uh, but in and of itself was more of a uh, an occult type practice than a science. Right, right. Well, I do believe that um, the people who uh, or or many of the people who were pursuing alchemy. Um, were of scientific mind and and were actually experimenting uh, with the idea that they were going to create some greater good and and that's how science was uh, you know it's linked to science is, is from that and yeah. you know, people like Leonardo da Vinci you know you would imagine that uh, well he's not out to defraud people so he was pursuing this as a a legitimate uh, scientific experiment he yeah. wanted to see if he could make it work yeah da Vinci was uh, was a bit of a busybody. And, uh, no. yeah. and he also would tend to uh, gain and lose interest in things very, very quickly, uh, as a true polymath often does. And uh, he, um, yeah, he, he built a weighted wheel. In his version, the weighted wheel actually had little uh, – uh, uh, on, on the perimeter of the wheel, the outside perimeter, there were these little uh, levers essentially with a weight mm-hmm. on the end and they were on a, a hinge so that as the wheel turned – the lever would move forward, and the the falling motion of the weight was supposed to try and you know keep counteract the wheel's tendency to stop. And again, Leonardo realized he said, "This just doesn't work." He said, uh, "As the attachment of the heavy body is farther from the center of the wheel, the revolving movement of the wheel round its pivot will become more difficult. Although the motive power may not vary." Essentially, he was saying, "It don't work, y'all." <laughs> and um, and and you know, thanks for translating. Despite that. We've had numerous people try to create perpetual motion machines since then. Sometimes they focus on gravity as being a, uh, the force that enacts the perpetual motion. Uh, others use magnetism. Mm-hmm. So they try and create something with magnets to make something spin and, uh, and they'll, they argue that it will spin indefinitely. Um, essentially they'll, it'll continue spinning until someone stops it. Mm-hmm. But that's not, that that has never proven to be true. It always will eventually come to a stop. It's just that sometimes it takes longer than others. And you might think, well, if you can extend it so that it's it's a really long time, isn't that effectively the same as perpetual motion? But I mean, there is a fundamental difference there. Right. So uh, yeah, it's. It, the way the way we think about things in an ideal situation is that you would have a um, uh, an isolated system, and an isolated system is one that has no other uh, forces acting upon it from the external sources. And uh, even if you were to have a a, a a demonstration of a perpetual motion machine, uh, the problem is that any demonstration cannot be an isolated system mm-hmm. because you can't have that in real life. It's a thought experiment, but you can't. There's no. There's no way you can isolate a system from everything else, mm-hmm. right? There's always going to be something else that's enacting upon it, and um, and so there are times where people have shown off devices that uh, that to perhaps 
someone not schooled in this would think, oh, that is perpetual motion. But upon closer examination, it tends to fall apart. Actually, it does fall apart. Mm -hmm. Which is part of the reason why the pursuit has gone on even to the current day. I mean, there's still people trying to uh, make that happen. But I think more and more these days, uh, it's turned out to be more of a hoax. Yeah. Intentionally, you know, somebody wants to go down in history as being the inventor of the perpetual motion machine and get fame and, and fortune. Yeah, there's also uh, there's also a, a common held belief that the patent offices won't accept patents for perpetual motion devices or over unity performance devices mm-hmm. based upon the fact that our scientific understanding suggests that these things are most likely impossible. That uh, That's not entirely true because just by changing the wording, I mean, there are a lot of people who write patents who avoid phrases that indicate that that's an over-unity performance device, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that they can't get a patent for it. They can if they word it the right way and the person reviewing the patent doesn't necessarily realize that that's what this is truly saying. So there are a lot yeah. of patents out there for devices that supposedly have over 100% efficiency, even though no one has demonstrably proven that such a device is actually uh, uh, you know a, a real thing I mean there's there have been a lot of uh, over unity performance devices that have been unveiled in places like Australia uh, in Europe even the United States as well where uh, they've invited people to come in and observe them and under casual observation it looks like they're doing the device is doing what was claimed mm-hmm. but it seems that whenever there is a legitimate uh, skeptical approach to this, that it then just falls apart. That you know, people, the scientists will say, "I can't endorse this. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem to work." Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also, it can be really tricky to determine from some of these devices uh, where where power is coming from, where it's going to, and you know, what where's the imbalance coming from. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you have one that works on electromagnets, well, you have to supply current to those electromagnets in order for them to work. And uh, and so if you have brought a battery into the system, mm-hmm. uh, as soon as you've got the battery there, then you've got the question of, well, is this battery actually providing some of that power that's coming out of the system? Uh, and if so, then that may just mean that all we're doing is shifting the power from the battery to the output. And it's not that the system itself is is super efficient. It's just that we've created a circuit, and that's all we've done. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this is this is one of those things that uh, uh, that continues to be a tempting target for a lot of inventors out there, and also a lot of hoaxers. In fact, you had a story uh, about uh, uh, a perpetual motion machine that turned out to not be all that it appeared to be on first glance, right? Right, right. Well, this was uh, something that I uncovered during my research about uh, um, this person named Charles Redheffer, who uh, showed up in Philadelphia in 1812 with this perpetual motion machine. Um, And he managed to get uh, an audience with the uh, uh, Philadelphia city commissioners. And uh, the idea was that he was going to show off how his machine worked, and he had this. He, he claimed that it didn't really need any uh, any source of external power to run; that it would run on its own. So, uh, uh, and and what it it also had another external device that it was powering it itself with uh, that was using gears to make it work. Except they uh, uh, weren't allowed to get too close to the machine. Yeah, that's always a 
strong indicator there when when the observation must be made at a distance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they uh, they actually they were skeptical because they uh, they could tell that it wasn't working the way it was supposed to, mm-hmm. um, that something was off. But he wouldn't let them get close enough to really determine what was going on. So they hired um, an engineer that they knew to build a machine like it. Um, and uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, apparently the Franklin Institution in Philadelphia still has that machine uh, that the other engineer made to, huh. to work like it. I've been um, to that institute. I don't remember seeing – I'm going to have to go back now and check that out. Um, he uh, – uh, Red Heifer actually uh, uh, hightailed it out of town when he realized that uh, the jig was up. Yeah. And it was time to uh, to move on to more fertile grounds. So he, he headed to uh, New York City where they hadn't yet learned of this. New York City? Get the rope. Um, <laughs> so uh, as, as it turns out, a, a fairly smart guy, uh, Robert Fulton, you may have heard of him. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. Steamboat Robbie. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he, he noticed – he saw the machine and uh, he could tell that it was – something was off. It wasn't – it was wobbling. It wasn't, it wasn't operating at a smooth pace. Yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, he had the, the feeling that somebody was making it work. Um, so he, uh, he challenged Red Heifer and said that he could, uh, uh, he could figure out how it was working. And if he broke the machine in any attempt, he would pay him for the damages. So, uh, <laughs> Red Heifer made the mistake of accepting that challenge. Um, so, uh, he, uh, he started, uh, taking boards off the wall near the machine and, uh, found a, uh, a cat gut cord that, uh, went upstairs to another room where they had a, an old, old uh, bearded guy sitting there uh, cranking the machine with one hand and eating with the other. So that's why it was sort of irregular was because he was cranking it irregularly. And uh, uh, people got upset and busted up the machine. And that was the end of Red Heifer's attempt to prove that he had the perpetual motion. Machine. Which is really tragic because, as we all know, in the... 19th century, many of our technologies were powered by bearded old men. Yes, that's true. Um, and incidentally, if you want to read more, uh, that was from the museumofhoaxes.com. It was Fantastic. a very entertaining read. Yeah, there's a, there are a couple of interesting, there are other, some other really famous hoaxes. Uh, and there's one that, that Chris and I both looked at, because uh, we do our, our research independently of mm-hmm. one another. So, uh, when we get together to record a podcast, often the stuff we say will surprise each other because, you know, we've pursued different paths. But one thing that we both looked at was the great chess automaton of Baron Wolfgang von Kempelen. Yeah, a.k.a. the Mechanical Turk. Yeah, 1769. All right, so imagine this, guys and gals. You've got this uh, this big wooden cabinet, and on the cabinet is a chessboard, and behind the cabinet stands a, uh, a, a wooden robot, essentially is what it was, mm-hmm. that it appears to – it looks like a Turk, yes. a Turkish dress, costume, that kind of thing. And, well, um, yes, I mean it was that w- that was supposed to uh, aid in the mystique. I yes, understand. yes, it was that whole idea mm, of adding Eastern mysticism, yes. right? So, uh, uh, Baron Wolfgang had suggested, or had actually claimed, that this was a mechanical toy that could play chess, and it was so good that it could defeat almost anybody in a chess game, and people would go up. To, to play. And what Wolfgang would do is he would open up the box and show that there are all these gears inside the box mm-hmm. and then close it. 
and then the game would start and the human player would move a chess piece and then after a moment the automaton would start to move and pick up a chess piece and move that to a different spot and they would play a game mm-hmm. and more often than not the automaton won it made a lot of people curious as to how it was actually working. There were many people who assumed that this was actually under human power and that it was not truly working with gears and that it was just being – it was just a clever trick. And they were – they actually were right. They just couldn't figure out how it was being done. Uh, no <laughs> no less of a, a luminary than Benjamin Franklin himself played against this machine. Yes, and uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Yeah, there were quite a few uh, famous folks. One famous person who thought he had come up with the way that it worked was almost right, Edgar Allan Poe. Really? Yeah, Edgar Allan Poe uh, observed this device in, in action and thought that perhaps there was a, a person hiding inside the Turk itself mm-hmm. and um, and working the 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 pieces, moving the pieces. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's not exactly how it worked. So what was going on was that the um, <laughs> there was this there were there were panels inside mm-hmm. the uh, the cabinet that hid the the human operator who was actually inside the the cabinet itself he was mm-hmm. not inside the turk but then he had he was wearing something that they were calling a pantograph mm-hmm. which was a device that would uh mimic his own movements so he was wearing a uh a, a kind of out uh, a kind of some gear so that when he would move his arm a certain way the automaton would also move its arm that way so it was almost like puppetry yes and uh, the the pieces of the uh on the chessboard were um had magnets in them which would allow him to use there was a magnet in the hand as well which would allow him to pick up a piece very carefully and move it and he could also see magnets underneath the um the board where he could track the movements of the chess pieces on both sides. So he's looking at the chess game from underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the what, what, what the Baron did was he would actually hire, he, when it was traveling from place to place, he would hire local chess champions to be the guy inside the box so mm-hmm. that the likelihood of losing was really low. And it was, in fact, a couple of these chess champions who later on wrote about their experience working within the box that kind of blew the whole thing out. And, uh, I mean, a lot of people had suspected what was going on, but no one had really proven it until there were these folks coming forward and saying, okay, here's how it worked. Well, it took them quite a while. Yes. I mean, you know, more than 50 years. Yeah. Uh and and what what's funny is that the uh the device uh, according to my notes anyway um continued to tour even after the the secret was released. Um I guess people wanted to uh see if they could beat somebody hiding out in a box. It was well, you know, it's a you it's think a, about playing though that way. It's sort yeah. of reversed. Yes, cuz you're looking from underneath and yeah. Weird. It's it's it was a very clever it was a very clever uh ruse and I think I think some people appreciate it just for the fact that it was so clever. Yeah. That it wasn't necessarily that, you know, they still believed that it was actually an automaton that was doing this, but just the fact that someone had managed to build I mean, the fact that they built this pantograph system yes. is pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah. You know, you, you sit there and you look at it and you're like, yeah, all right, so it's not an automaton. It's not a it's not it's not an early version of a computer, but it's still a pretty impressive a piece of machinery when you think about what it had to accomplish. That that's true, and it really it was really sort of a uh, stagecraft thing. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, so from a from a stage perspective, you can certainly appreciate it, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's one of that that one I think is is pretty neat. Uh, there was another one, another hoax that uh, was not as neat. This one actually is more like your perpetual motion hoax that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but I, I was going to mention uh, yeah. before before we moved on too far from the mechanical Turk. Oh, Turk, okay, sure. Um, that it's still famous today, in as much as Amazon.com. Um, still uses the name Mechanical Turk, Turk, and you might say, "Well, for what?" Well, um, if you're unfamiliar with this, this is their uh, their human problem solving um, engine, if you will. That basically uh, people get involved to solve uh, problems for other people, and uh, so it's sort of like that. It is sort of a machine powered by people on the back end, but it is an opportunity for people to. Um, Sort of crowdsource uh, problem solutions. I think it's kind of funny that Amazon decided to name its uh, its product after the famous chess playing machine. Thing. Yeah, yeah. It's nice. It's it's just obscure enough where where the average person right. may not know what it's referencing. Uh, well, uh, I was going to talk about uh, John Worrell Keeley. Oh yes, from the uh, who founded the Keeley Motor Company. Who lost it? it. Back in 1875, he created the Keeley Motor Company, mm-hmm. Mr. Literal. And uh, he he had created what was called a vibratory generator that used a quart of water to generate power. And he claimed that it could uh, create the same amount of power that would be necessary to pull a fully loaded train for more than an hour. Sure. And uh, he would actually show off this device. He would pour some water into this this engine-looking thing. It would start running. And he would do this to people who he would uh, court as investors. Mm-hmm. So he'd bring these investors in, give them a demonstration of this device where water uh, seemingly was all that was needed to create this massive amount of power. And it – Worked. I mean, it worked in the sense that it got investors interested enough to pour money into his uh, um, into his uh, invention, and the scientific community said, "This doesn't sound too likely to us." But that didn't really matter so much because, you know, this was an era where engineers were coming up with really interesting inventions, mm-hmm. and sometimes those inventions were working for reasons that the engineers couldn't really explain, mm-hmm. because our, our scientific knowledge had not reached the point where we could really comprehend everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. didn't mean that the inventions weren't working, or that they were they were fake, or whatever. It just meant that we didn't know why they worked. Well, that's what these investors were hoping for back in the uh, in 1875. Yeah, it really helped Keeley too that he was a charismatic person that used liked to use a um, scientific sounding jargon to confuse those investors, and, yeah. and he, he sounded like he knew what he was doing, and he uh, um, he had the stage presence to pull it off. You yeah, know, he, he looked and sounded like he was the real deal. Well, that's and, and that's that's Atomic still triplets. That's, that's still common today, where you'll have. Uh, some hoaxers out there who will use pseudoscientific terms in order to uh, baffle their their audience into no. thinking that they know what's going on. Stop. <laughs> I don't believe you. So then there's a – well, let me talk about what happened with this motor here. Um, so he was showing this – or engine, I should say. He was showing off this engine over and over and over again and kept getting investors. Well, then Keeley keeled over. Uh, in, uh, in 1898. I see what you did there. Yeah, he shuffled off the mortal coil. He 
joined the choir invisible. He rolled, <laughs> ran up the curtain. This was an ex Keeley. This was an ex Keeley. And so, uh, when he died, some investigators started checking out his stuff because, hey, you know, there's this engine that he had been working on for, for more than a decade, uh, for more than two decades. And, it would still be a very valuable contribution if it actually worked, even though he just kept on getting investments and never really produced anything. Well, the investigators discovered that there was a secret to this engine. Mm-hmm. That in the basement of his house, he had an, a compressed air machine and he had a hose going all the way up to the engine that was hidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hose itself was hidden from view. The engine, by the way, was two floors up from the basement, so ah. it was a pretty long hose. But it turned out that the compressed air was what was making the engine run, not the water. The water had nothing to do with it. So there was another external power source that was coming in or doing work on this engine, making it move. Mm-hmm. And that the whole thing, the entire time, was a complete hoax. It was just a way of bilking money out of uh, gullible investors, which uh, at that point the scientific community uh, – managed heroically to resist the urge of saying, ha-ha, told you so. Mm -hmm. Well, it's less satisfying when the person that you would tell is... Dead. Dead. Yeah, well, the people... Except for the investors. The investors, yeah. They were probably poorer for it, but... And, you know, again, there are a lot of other interesting kind of hoaxes out there. Uh, There was one that was really recent as of the recording of our 400th episode, Spectacular, Mm -hmm. uh, by a fellow named... Yarno Smeets. <laughs> Smeets. Yeah, Smeets uh, released a viral video that you guys may have seen. It got a lot of attention very early on and, oh, and, yeah. a, and a lot of critical reception as well. I mean, I, I think every single discussion I saw had at least a few people specifically saying something's hinky here. Well, but, um, how, how long have people been trying to do what uh, Smeets uh, in the video allegedly did, where yeah. you know he strapped a set of wings on himself, you know, flapped his arms and took off? Yeah, that's exactly what I happens. I want to do video. that. In the video, he had this. In the video, he had this large set of wings uh, that were that were attached to his back, and he had these um, these handles that he could hold. And when he pulled down the handles, the wings would flap. And he would, he ran down a field and seemingly took off from the field and started to fly around just by flapping his wings. And meanwhile, all of his cohorts are hooping and hollering and, and celebrating down below. And a lot of people were, uh, let's say skeptical for the, about this and reasonably so. Well, you, you have to, if you're going to do this, just remember, uh, well, first of all, don't try this at home. And second of all, don't fly too close to the sun because it will melt the wax that holds your feathers together. Okay, Dallas. Well, uh, I'm, okay. I'm going to – I just want to – I want to point out the thought process that the skeptics took. Okay, sure. So in order to fly, you have to have enough lift to counteract your weight. Yes. You know, the force so, of gravity pulling you down. Right. So the the lift has to be equal to or greater than the force of gravity pulling you downward. Mm-hmm. And lift is generated by a couple of different things, uh, including the um, the the uh, angle of attack for your wings, uh, also the um, the shape of the wing itself, uh, difference in air pressure. There there are multiple things that go into it. It's pretty complicated actually, but uh, you have to be able to counteract. That gravity with these these uh, other factors in order to fly, and uh, really 
the 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 math just doesn't work out when it comes to human powered flight like in this way. Um, they figured uh, one one uh, uh, estimation I saw was that the fellow weighed probably around eight hundred newtons. A newton is a point two two five pounds. Mm-hmm. It's often used in these sort of physics uh, uh, calculations. And that the the gear they estimated to be at another 300 newtons, which means they have uh, they would have uh, 1,100 newtons of lift would need to be generated in order to take off, and it just doesn't appear to be physically possible. Mm-hmm. So, uh, just based on that alone, the video was called into question, and Sweets, to his credit, did eventually say, "Yeah, it was you know, it was it was a." It was all a ruse. It was a hoax. It was a joke. It was a video that we did. Ha 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 ha. Yeah, he he explained the whole thing. Yeah. Um, uh, which is you know a slightly different approach than the ones ta- or the one taken by the uh, Heenies back when uh, the Balloon Boy episode went up. Balloon Boy. We'll talk about him in a second. Yeah, it just reminded me of that. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to talk about Balloon Boy because that's a great hoax story. Mm-hmm. Great, especially because no one at the end of it was hurt physically. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, yeah. So he he actually just came clean and said, you know, and, and unashamedly so that this was you know kind of a uh, this mm-hmm. was kind of a, a just a joke and um, and it was an effective one, effective enough so that some people I know. <laughs> We're posting this, and you could tell that they were kind of skeptical, but they were also really hoping it was real, which, you know, you can't blame them. I mean, that whole idea of flight has always been something that humans have been interested in, mm-hmm. and, the, and the thought of being able to fly under your own power is very um, is a very alluring idea. But um, uh, I don't know that I knew anyone who bought it hook, line, and sinker. Right. But there were quite a few people who were – Obviously hoping it was true. Not true, sadly. Balloon Boy was gladly not true. Yes. So Balloon Boy, if you do not remember Balloon Boy, I remember – I was that we, was when we were working here yes. already because mm-hmm. I remember work in the office stopped to find out about more about this Balloon Boy thing. Um, so there was this uh, this family that had a uh, – a, a saucer-shaped balloon. Mm-hmm. Some people might say UFO-shaped balloon, but that doesn't make any sense. Well, uh, <laughs> unidentified flying object-shaped balloon. A balloon, by its definition, <laughs> yeah, is identified, so it can't. <laughs> I'm just saying, flying saucer. Yes, it was more like a flying saucer with a little basket thing underneath. Yeah, and that um, that the family said that uh, they could not locate the youngest boy in the family. Yes, and Falcon. Falcon, and they they feared that Falcon was flying mm-hmm. in this balloon, thus the balloon boy. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, it, it had broken loose from its tethers, right. and they thought that perhaps he would he might be aboard. And, and news helicopters took off because it was flying by itself, you know, just wandering as balloons are commonly right. And so you had all these law doing. enforcement agencies trying to figure out how were they going to try and bring the balloon down to, to in a way that would. That would most guarantee the boy's safety because, um, uh, you know, it's you, you, you can shoot it down, but should, then it falls right out of the right. sky. Plummeting, plummeting from the sky is not the best way to preserve a little boy's uh, uh, physical health. So there was a lot of uh, discussion about what they needed to do, and at the same time, you had a lot of critical thinkers out there saying, 
hang on. This balloon isn't really behaving the way it would if there were a little boy aboard there. I mean, the little boy would have to weigh nothing for this mm-hmm. balloon to be behaving the way it is. Yes. Which is true. The little boy weighed nothing because there was no little boy inside the balloon. It was not behaving as it would if it had a weight inside it. Yeah. And, uh, and so it still was a very dramatic, uh, uh, event. You know, people were really following it closely and then the balloon did crash. And people went there and looked, and there was no boy within the balloon. Then there was a worry for a while that perhaps the boy had fallen out of the balloon sometime mid-flight. Yep. I remember the news reports showing the map of the area that it had traversed and how they were were discussing how they were going to uh, conduct the search and things. Speaking of conducting searches, uh, as it turns out, when the law enforcement authorities conducted a search of their home, they found the little boy upstairs hiding in the attic. And, uh, uh, and, and then, they of course, just, they were all relieved because, oh, well, we thought you were on the balloon. Nah, they just, so they just, they just had to lean on that little boy a little bit, and he he cracked like a peanut on national TV. Yeah, he said, <laughs> "You guys said we did this for the show." Apparently, they were trying to get themselves uh, a TV show. Yeah, and um, they got themselves apparently they got themselves uh legal charges because yeah. they um they had expended a lot of manpower and fuel trying to figure out yeah. what was going on with this balloon it's not nice to fool mother nature or law enforcement yes yeah so Very they, upset. they yeah they they were uh they did not get a deal out of that <laughs> not a good one anyway um yeah that was uh that was one of the more famous hoaxes uh, there there's some other ones um liquid mountaineering Oh, do you mm-hmm. remember that? Uh, not really. So there were these viral videos that came out a couple of years ago, and they were called. It was it was a new sport, air quotes, mm-hmm. called liquid mountaineering. And the idea that was perpetuated in these videos was that if you were to generate enough speed in your run and come down toward a water surface at a weird angle, usually you'd have to run down like the banks of a lake or a river. Uh, but not straight at the water you're coming at from an angle that you could supposedly make it out three or four steps across the water before you fell through. The idea is somehow that you're moving fast enough where you are skipping across the water. You, you don't break that surface tension of the water itself, which is ridiculous. <laughs> it's just it absolutely patently ridiculous. The first time I saw it, I thought, oh, well, that's – that's a clever hoax. And I, I knew exactly how it had to have been done, and it turned out that is exactly how it was done. So in the videos, it does look pretty convincing. You see these people running at a weird angle, and they get like three or four steps out before they fall in. And the the idea that everyone was saying was that you, if you were able to k- keep up the speed, you could perhaps go indefinitely. Mm-hmm. That if you were really super fast, you could Remo Williams style run across a um, – a water surface. Have you seen Remo Williams? No, actually. Uh, uh, yes. Nor have I seen Jaws, so I imagine that running across the water could get you eaten by a shark. Well, but Remo Williams is a is a fantastic documentary. You have to go watch it. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, actually, I, fantastic documentary is probably going a bit far, but it's fun. It's kind of in the same – it feels like it's in the same universe as Buckaroo Banzai. Okay. Did you see Buckaroo Banzai? No, oh, but I read no. the comic book. Oh, no. Paulette, episode 400, and my illusions are all shattered. <laughs> um, well, we'll have a movie marathon of Jaws, Remo Williams, and Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, 
How about how about Big Trouble in Little China? Have you seen that? Can we get back on the topic? Because that's also in that universe. Still well. haven't seen it. Oh no! Well, so. this movie marathon's getting longer and longer. Anyway, so the running <laughs> across the, the marathon. Well, the way this was actually accomplished was very simple, and sometimes those simple ideas are the best. They had a clear platform that was under the surface of the water by you know like half an inch. Mm-hmm. So clear platform under the water, you can't see it. It looks like there's nothing there. There are actual gimmicks out there for certain magic tricks that work on a similar uh, idea where you've got uh, you actually have a divider within a container that when you've got the water in the container, you can't tell that there's a divider in there at all. It just blends right in. Mm -hmm. Same sort of thing. This platform was under the surface of the water. You could not see it from the surface, especially at the angles they had picked because, you know, clearly they want to make sure that it looks as good as possible. And so when people were running uh, across the water, they were actually running on a platform. And when the platform ran out, they went through the water because <laughs> it doesn't work. You can't do that. And it turned out the whole thing were, uh, was a, a sort of an advertisement campaign that was this viral advertisement attempt. And it worked. You know, it's hard to engineer a viral video. Mm-hmm. We, you know, it's it's one of those things that usually a viral video happens just uh, on its own. It's not like if you try to push for a viral video, often that fails. In this case, it worked, uh, but it was one that was funded by a company called High Tech Sports that made sport equipment, sport gear, like shoes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And every one in the video was wearing that kind of equipment. And, uh, hmm. yeah. And so it turned out that it was really just sort of a clever viral ad. And, uh, it did, it, you know, they, that game worked for quite a while. It took a while before anyone, uh, really tackled it and, uh, and showed that it was, uh, impossible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard of the, uh, Pogue carburetor? Is this one that was supposed to go like a hundred miles or something? Oh, or? more than that. 200 miles, 300 miles on a gallon of gas, uh-huh. uh, invented by a, uh, theoretically invented by a, a Canadian guy named Charles Nelson Pogue. I know a. you wanted me to say Riley. A. <laughs> um, Charles Nelson, Nelson Riley. Um, who, uh, CNR. Yes. Uh, uh, unbelievably, Charles Nelson Pogue apparently never appeared on the match game. Um, no, he, uh, he had, again, this is the same kind of thing. Kids, uh, ask your parents. <laughs> um, so yeah, apparently if you, uh, operated this carburetor at a, uh, a certain temperature and you added the fuel in a, a vapor state rather than a, uh, a really a wet state where the, the part, the droplets of water, I mean, sorry, droplets of gasoline were, uh, introduced into the carburetor, then you could get, uh, a much more efficient reaction. Uh, of course, you, this is one of those things that, uh, uh, you can be skeptical of when you start to hear that he really didn't let people get a close look at uh, what he was doing. Um, he didn't, uh, from what I've read, he didn't seem to uh, try to capitalize on this too much. He It, it sort of faded, but uh, people started talking about um, some units that were smuggled out of the, the laboratory and, uh, you know, that they could put in your car. Um, and this, this is one of those, uh, things that I think sort of on its own would have died out if not for the rumors about it. And there's still some that, that are out there that say, uh, that the, uh, that, um, the gasoline industry doesn't want people to know about this because it's, uh, a, um, a hidden technology that, uh, would make them obsolete. So they, they're hushing it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, there are people promising that they could, they could get it out there and, uh, 
um, they're, that they can give this to you if you'll just, you know, fork over some money. We'll help you out with this. Yeah, the, the whole conspiracy angle is a very, very popular one to play when you're running a hoax. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. all you have to do is, is suggest that there are other people who do not want this to go out because it would ruin their businesses. Mm-hmm. And then you immediately give your own your own efforts a sort of a credibility there because you're saying, look, clearly it's in their best interest to prevent this from ever coming out. Yeah, why would they be trying so hard to defeat me if I weren't right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That that plays into something else that I'll talk about in a second, too. Okay. Oh, are you done? Yeah, I, I was done. Oh, I just clear. wanted to mention that. No, cool, cool. No, no. I was going to talk about um, fusion and cold fusion. Now, now this uh, is a little different, but it has some similarities to what you were just talking about. First of all, fusion is real. All right, we're not we're not saying that fusion does not work. We talked about it in our nuclear weapons podcast about how the fusion bomb works, right? Yeah, right, yeah, and how you uh, take two atoms and put a tiny little drop of super glue in there so they glue them together. Yeah, that mm. super glue is called a neutron. Anyway, so in uh, a fusion reactor, yeah, would be phenomenal if we could get one to work because we you know, fusion is what the sun does. That's that's how the sun generates energy is through fusion. It's fusing hydrogen into helium right. at a temperature of millions of degrees. Doom, doom. Yeah. But um, but yeah, the the energy released when when two atoms fuse together like that yeah. uh, is amazing. Yes. And uh but the problem is that in order to achieve fusion from what we know right now, what mm-hmm. what is required is huge amounts of pressure and temperature. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh if you had a temperature high enough, the pressure wouldn't be as important. <laughs> but pressure, uh, higher pressure means that the, t- the temperature requirement starts to drop. But you need an incredible amount of both mm-hmm. in order to achieve fusion. And that's been one of those problems that scientists have been trying to tackle for uh, more than a decade as they try to create a fusion reactor. Because nuclear reactors work on fission, not fusion. Right. But there the ones are lo- we have now. Anyway. Right, right. But there are a lot of different labs across the world that are working on trying to create fusion. And they're doing this through things like using high-powered lasers to initiate that first reaction to create the, the conditions necessary to have fusion. But uh, there's a joke within nuclear physics that fusion reactors are 30 years away. Mm-hmm. And 10 years from now, they will be 30 years away. Right. And 20 years from now, they'll be 30 years away. That's just going to be a moving goalpost that uh, that we never achieve. Now, that may not be true. We may tackle that and, and, and beat it. We may figure out how to create a fusion reactor that is reliable and does not require so much energy to initiate it that it is – that it is not impractical, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the other problem is that, you know, you got to have a practical reactor. It doesn't, if, if it works, but it takes way too much energy to get it going, then it's not really practical. Right. So those are the two goals. Well, cold fusion is this idea that you are able to create fusion reactions and generate energy, but at a temperature much lower than a typical fusion reaction would require. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we're talking not necessarily room temperature, still talking in temperature in the hundreds of degrees, but not millions of degrees. Yeah, yeah. Now, I remember, of course, the thing that you're about to talk about uh, in just a moment here, um, because I was in, I think, high school. Um, and uh, yeah, that was it, was, it caused a sensation because um, there were a couple of uh, scientists who said, hey, we've managed to create fusion at room temperature. Yeah, that would be Pons and Fleischmann back yes. in 1989. Yes. A uh, very famous uh, 
famous for both the the hoopla surrounding the announcement and the fallout that followed because uh, it was it was ugly. I mean, in scientific circles, it was about as ugly as it could get. So Pons and Fleischmann had done this experiment, and they were they discovered that there was this this heat that was being generated in the experiment that they could not explain. Uh, mm-hmm. Easily, and so they were trying to find the source of this anomalous heat. And in part of their uh, their experiments and then their observations, they determined that it must have been the result of fusion. Mm-hmm. That that the uh, elements within their experiment were fusing together, and that the heat was a, a byproduct of that, which was phenomenal because at those temperatures, that was unheard of. Yeah. Uh, there were other labs that tried to replicate their experiments, and some of the early attempts appeared to at least lend some credence, including one that happened at Georgia Tech. Yeah. However, uh, then there were later experiments done with really well-calibrated equipment that showed no replicability right. of this experiment. And mm-hmm. by the way, in science, that's really important. You have to – if you have an experiment and you've come to a conclusion, that experiment needs to be – uh, replicable. You need to be able to repeat it and have the same outcome each time. Otherwise, it's not it's not worth anything, right? Scientifically, because if you can't predict it and you can't replicate it, then there's nothing there. So, science uh, is like that. Yeah, that's the way science works. So, the the future experiments seem to negate Pons and Fleischmann's um, findings, and Pons and Fleischmann both continued to work in the field. Uh, and receive funding from various sources, including I think it was a university in Utah that was funding some research for quite some time. But then eventually they cut it off because after years and years of research, there was still no measurable impact. There was nothing mm-hmm. that had really come out of it. And uh, and so even to this day, there are plenty of scientists out there who are trying to find out if cold fusion really does like if, if it really can exist. And there's right. there's nothing necessarily in physics that says it's impossible. Right. It's just that based upon everything we've observed, it seems very improbable. Mm-hmm. And that it would take extraordinary proof to counteract that. Uh, I've actually read some very interesting thoughts from various physicists, including skeptics of cold fusion, who think that the uh, scientific environment surrounding cold fusion is um, – counterproductive. Right. Because what what cold fusion proponents would say is that the scientific community is biased against cold fusion. Right? That that they they believe that they're, they're being dogmatic. Mm-hmm. That they believe without without reason that cold fusion is impossible and they dismiss it out of hand and they will refuse to publish papers, peer-reviewed papers about cold fusion in peer-reviewed journals. Right. So they're essentially saying that we're being ostracized by the scientific community. Mm-hmm. Well, there's some people within the scientific community that, you know, the the consensus, the people who actually say that cold fusion probably can't work, mm-hmm. who say, you know what, they've got something there. Because if we do not allow them to submit papers to peer-reviewed journals and actually have peer review and undergo a strict scientific examination of their processes, mm-hmm. all we're really doing is reinforcing their belief that they are right. So that maybe what the best thing to do is open up a little bit more, take in these proposals, take in these studies, really take a look at them, try and determine if there is in fact anything there 
before just dismissing it because otherwise all we're doing is creating this subculture that could very well they, – they might be onto something or it might be that they're chasing a pipe dream. And if we were able to say, look, we really did give this our full attention. Mm-hmm. We really did listen to you and this is what we found. Maybe those people would redirect their efforts into something else instead of chasing something that isn't working. Yeah. In either case, it's a win, right? If if they're right, if the if the cold fusion people are right, then we've suddenly got a, an avenue to amazing ways of generating energy that are potentially uh, eco-friendly, uh, are totally renewable type mm-hmm. sources. It would be almost endless energy. So that's a great dream. Um, and if they're wrong, then we've got all these really smart people who are otherwise following a fool's errand moving on to something else. Right. So either way, we win. Right. And science is supposed to work that way, too. I yeah. mean, you're not supposed to make a decision on uh, the outcome until you've seen the results of the experiment. Yeah. Um, so it, it it should be that, uh, you know, people are getting a fair shake. Um, yeah. You know, once they actually see the results of the experiment, not before they've had an opportunity to to try it out. Yeah. So I, I and I want to go on record uh, about the whole cold fusion thing from my perspective. I am very skeptical that cold fusion works, but I don't dismiss it out of hand because, first of all, my my knowledge of physics is limited. So and uh, and chemistry as well, because mm-hmm. chemistry really plays a huge part in cold fusion. In fact, that's what a lot of cold fusion. Uh, proponents say is the problem is that it's physicists who are poo-pooing cold fusion and it should be chemists who talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I admit that my knowledge on both of those subjects is limited. So, uh, so I could, you know, it could very well work, but just based upon the information I've read from scientists whom I, I respect, uh, I am, I'm skeptical of it. Now, if it does turn out to work, that is awesome because it will be an, it'll, it would, change the world unlike anything else. Like I can't imagine any technology changing the world more than cold fusion would. Yeah, I agree with you there. Uh, I just don't think it's going to happen, unfortunately. Uh, So we had some other kind of hoaxes that uh, would be interesting to talk about. Like uh, you had um, a certain certain, uh, autopsy. Oh, yeah, the the alien autopsy. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yep. Yeah. I I, I was watching an episode of (laughs) X-Files. Uh, I remember, um, yeah, it was in the the 1990s yeah. when uh, Fox here in the United States was showing these uh, this special on um, uh, an alien body that had been discovered, um, and uh, you know this was supposed to be uh, footage, video footage shot after uh, uh, the Roswell supposed uh, <laughs> alien landing in but Roswell. There's problem number New Mexico. one. New Mexico. Problem number one. Those were those were uh, spy balloons essentially. Um, that crashed in Roswell. As it uh, as it turns out, um, they were actually using uh, animal organs and uh, raspberry jam inside these supposed alien bodies. And the, uh, you know, the like you do the camera per- camera person uh, who was uh, an Englishman named uh, Ray Santilli uh, actually admitted to it in 2006. So uh, the whole uh, scientific uh, alien uh, uncovering. Apparently not so much scientific yeah. or alien. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, skeptics talk about that. I mean, uh, obviously, they're going to as soon as that video hit the airwaves. Oh, yeah. And uh, and one of those skeptics was Rick Baker. Do you recognize ah, that name? Yes, I do. Hollywood uh, special effects and makeup artist. Mm-hmm. 
He's he's done some amazing amazing work in in Hollywood on various documentaries, and uh, and so he, he I had to throw that one in there too, but uh, yeah he said he just felt it was just a, a model puppet. That's all it was was a it was not anything truly uh, organic in the sense of like this was not actually a creature. Mm-hmm. It also reminds me of do you remember here in Georgia we had the Bigfoot. Scam, oh yeah, the Bigfoot yeah. hoax. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were. Um, I, I wish I, I didn't pull this information up because I didn't think about it. So it doesn't really fit with technology. But there was the hoax that a couple of guys had uh, had managed to either. I, I guess they they either killed the Bigfoot or they came upon its corpse, one of the two, and that they had it preserved, and they were going to show it off. And it turned out that all it was was a, a Bigfoot costume and some meat that had been stuffed into a like an igloo <laughs> ice chest or something. And it still managed to cause quite a stir before uh, before anyone said, "Hey." <laughs> you know? So yeah, I remember that. Um, but uh, the the I only have one other big um, hoax that I was going to talk about. Is there anything else you wanted to chat about before we move into things that make Jonathan's head explode? See, you did when you said that about the Bigfoot. It reminded me of the uh, chupacabra. Oh, the one that washed up on. Yeah, uh, which turned out to be a hairless wolf. Yeah, now there there's been a, there have been a few cases of animals that have, uh, have probably suffered something like mange, that uh, their their bodies have washed up on the shores of various lakes that always end up starting off some discussion about a, a heretofore undiscovered animal mm. uh, like a chupacabra, um, mm, but not chupacabra. so much <laughs> chupa thingy. It's got a nice ring to it. Chupa chups. Uh, so, uh, do, did you have any other ones you no. want to talk about? All yeah. right. So we're going to segue into the one that, that gets me insanely angry. Should I get the, uh, fire extinguisher? You might want to. Okay. okay. So, I mean, I get angry when people pull hoaxes on, on other folks for financial gain. If it's like a harmless joke type thing where the whole purpose of it is just to say, haha, I'm clever and, and teach you a lesson about critical thinking, that, that can irritate me, but, I I understand that, and if it actually does serve a purpose in teaching people to think critically, that's that's a positive outcome in my book. Mm-hmm. People who are uh, leveraging other folks' vulnerability and pulling the wool over their eyes in order to make money and potentially harming countless people in the process get me so infuriated that it's hard for me to form complete sentences. One of those people kind of entertaining for us. One of those people is Jim McCormick. Now, Jim McCormick created something called the ADE-651 bomb detector. Ah, yes. Now, this bomb detector, what it looked like was it you had like a, um, a kind of a, a thing that would clip onto your belt and there would be a cable that would run from that to a handheld device that had this antenna-looking thing that came out of it. And supposedly, this device was capable of sniffing out a bomb as far away as a kilometer so that you could actually detect bombs, even if they were underground mm-hmm. or flying overhead or whatever, you would be able to detect these bombs. And McCormick ended up selling these at around $40,000 a pop to the Iraqi government uh, after the the uh, United States uh, uh, got involved with, um, with trying to deal with all that. So you had this very vulnerable population 
Mm-hmm. And you had a very solid need for bomb detection equipment because yes. there were a lot of uh, improvised explosive devices, IEDs, mm-hmm. that people were worried about. Uh, you had uh, folks who were willing to be a suicide bomber. So there were a lot of reasons why you would want this. And it would help a lot with things like roadblocks and, and you know vehicle checks and all this kind of stuff that most of us, thankfully, don't have to worry about. Right. All right, but for the people who do have to worry about them, it is a very real concern. And so they had a, a true need and were very vulnerable. And McCormick came up and said, here's this device. It can detect things from up to a kilometer away. Um, it's completely reliable. You should buy them. And so the Iraqi government purchased for uh, around $85 million worth of these things. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem. They don't work. There's nothing in them. If you were to open up the the handset... You would just see that the antenna is just screwed into a little plastic casing. It doesn't have anything in it. The cable doesn't carry any information to it. You would have these little cards that would supposedly help you sniff out different types of bombs. They should slide into a slot. The cards did nothing. The slot did nothing. Uh, inside the, 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 the belt case was, you know, useless stuff. Like you, you might find some wires and things, but they weren't connected to anything. Mm-hmm. It was, just an, it was really just a case mm-hmm. and a bunch of unconnected wires. So there was no physical way this thing could work. There was just nothing that would give it any sort of functionality. Um, and it turned out that apparently McCormick was also a believer in uh, dowsing, which mm. makes perfect sense because dowsing is again something that has no evidence. There's no evidence at all to support dowsing. Right. Dowsing is. More of a of a uh, idio. Uh, what is it called? It's the it's the effect that you have where you cannot you know you make small tiny little motions with your hands that you don't consciously detect, but you're making them, and as a result, things in your hands might move around a little bit, and you may think they're moving on their own accord or some other external force is acting on them, but really it's just you doing it. Mm-hmm. And I know our listeners probably know the term for that. It just escaped my mind. So feel free to write in and let me know because I'm sure that <laughs> after about 50 of those, I'll never forget again, and you'll be doing me a service. Um, but yeah, so McCormick had sold uh, millions of dollars of these. He eventually was taken into custody and uh, and, and charged with fraud. Mm-hmm. Here's the other tragic part of this. The Iraqi government acknowledged that some of the devices would not work, but did not discontinue using those devices. Because, Well, I can't really say why because, because I don't know, right? I'm not part of the Iraqi government. Right. I would suspect that part of the reason was that it was trying to save face, because to admit that they had spent $85 million on a fraud would have been deeply embarrassing. Sure. And so... Maybe they weighed that against, like, do we want to lose that much face or do we want to just quietly keep using this knowing it doesn't work with the, with, with the, the knowledge paired with that, knowing that people could die as a result. If someone is given a piece of equipment and told that this is what it does and he or she truly believes that that's the case, then you have just put that person at risk and they could lose their lives in the process. And to me, that is just so reprehensible, both on the part of McCormick and on the part of the the government that knew that it was a fraud at that point but refused to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. It's unthinkable to me. I can't, I can't imagine being so, so uncaring 
as mm-hmm. to be able to perpetuate that sort of crime on people. No, I, yeah, I can't it's, either. And this is where I get angry. I mean, <laughs> I, I've done talks about critical thinking and technology mm-hmm. a couple of times. This is always the piece that I end on. And the reason why I end on this piece is I think it is so important to illustrate why critical thinking is fundamental in everything we do, not just technology. And I will be the first to admit that I have I have had lapses in critical thinking myself. There are times where I will see something and I accept it, and then later on I see that I was wrong, and I think all the indicators were there. Mm-hmm. And if I had only paid attention and thought about this for more than a second, rather than just accept it, then I could have I could have been free of being fooled of it from yeah. the beginning. And it's good to have those moments and to realize that we're all fallible and we can all make these mistakes. And if we're just careful, then we will make fewer of those mistakes in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's why I always end with this piece, because I think I think our listeners are the smart kind of people who know that if they're just if they're careful and they think about things and they really say, based upon all the information that we have so far, is this really likely mm-hmm. or could this just be a scam or a trick or someone who's deluded themselves into believing that something that is impossible is possible? Right. Um, I, I recommend everyone out there just follow that that sort of philosophy. You know, skepticism doesn't mean that you are dismissing something out of hand. Mm-hmm. Because to do that is to be dogmatic, and that's not what skepticism means. Skepticism means that you are examining things, you're looking for evidence, you are looking for that causal relationship that is necessary to say that this one thing makes this other thing happen. You're using science. Mm-hmm. Science is a process. It's not a philosophy necessarily. It's it's a process of observing our universe, drawing conclusions, and making uh, predictions based on those conclusions that should come true based upon what we know. And if they don't come true, it means we have to reexamine what we thought we knew and try and come up with new sets of rules and guidelines. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so guys, um, I think, I think everyone who listens to this show, everyone who's written into us shows that they have this capability. And I, I encourage you to continue to develop it and just know that even the, the smartest people out there can be fooled into these, the stuff that doesn't work. Right. Right. Well, and there's, there's just going to be more of it. Yeah. Um, whether it's, you know, got good intentions behind it, like, um, the scientists trying to create perpetual motion machines in the past or, uh, you know, the cold fusion experiments or, mm-hmm. you Which, know. Which, who knows, maybe they'll turn out. Yep, yep. Well, it's it's worth investigating on a scientific basis. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, then there are the others where people are intentionally trying to uh, defraud others. Right. You know, it's – it's we're, we're never going to be uh, – in a world where people don't try new things, whether it's for good or or uh, ill cash, yeah, yeah, there, um, there are plenty of uh, plenty of people out there who are ready and willing to prey upon those who are willing to believe. Yeah. So maybe for our 800th episode, we'll we'll tackle a whole new set of uh, tech that doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, that'll be our our 400s. Every every multiple of 400, we'll just do new stuff that doesn't work. All right, I'm okay uh, with that. But by, by episode 1200, that might be us. <laughs> so uh so guys thanks so much for listening to our show we don't say it often enough we love you guys we're so glad that you listened to us we hope that you've been enjoying our show so far we plan on doing this as long as they let us to do it um yeah. we're not we're not going anywhere unless uh well you know unless there's something that we just can't 
can't control because sometimes we don't work either. (laughs) Well, there was that one day when we came in to record and we couldn't because the tech just didn't work. That's true. There are those days. It actually happens. That does happen, uh, even to the best of us. But if you guys have any suggestions for future episode topics you would like us to tackle, let us know. You can email us. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com. Or you can send us a message via Facebook or Twitter. Our handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. And Chris and I will talk to you again 400 freaking times really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Work's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?